It's Wednesday, August 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Many COVID relief programs have been the subject of fraud by scammers, but a whole slew of international scam artists have taken advantage of the enhanced unemployment benefits offered up to those affected by the pandemic. Russian scammers, Chinese hackers, and Nigerian scammers have used stolen identities easily accessed from data breaches and relaxed verification requirements to make bogus claims for COVID aid. Aging state unemployment systems also contributed to the problem. The scams are so widespread, we don't really know how much money has been stolen, but it is believed to be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Kit Ramgopal, reporter with the investigative unit at NBC News, joins us for how they did it. Next, the pandemic has changed the way we eat and what chefs serve us. Restaurants are still trying to recover from prolonged closures, supply chain issues, and lack of staff. In response to all of that, we saw menus slimmed down to optimize to-go orders, which is still the case in many areas, but we also saw complete menu overhauls that limited seafood because of costs and less complicated menus that are easier to execute. Patricia Escarciga, reporting fellow at The Counter, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The CARES Act really tried to make benefits easier to access for obvious reasons. Um, In particular, they opened benefits up to people who aren't usually eligible. Gig economy workers, contractors, the self-employed, which was, of course, much needed, but created issues from a fraud standpoint because there's no employer who can really verify those claims. It's basically built around self-certification, the honor system. Joining us now is Kit Ramgopal reporter with the investigative unit at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Kit. Thanks for having me. wanted to talk about how scam artists were taking full advantage of all the COVID benefits that the government was putting out there, mostly in the unemployment area. A lot of stories already about fraud and billions of dollars being siphoned out by scammers. But we're getting another look into this and how international scam artists were a big part of this. Uh, Russian mobsters, Chinese hackers, Nigerian scammers were pulling tens of billions of dollars out of COVID benefits meant for Americans, obviously. So, Kit, uh, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing with these scam artists? Yeah, so basically it is kind of a perfect storm. You've got $900 billion in unemployment benefits at this point, and the biggest bucket of scammers that are paying attention to it appear to be foreign criminals, disturbingly, according to law enforcement sources. So as you had said, we're talking sophisticated, organized criminal groups operating out of China, Russia, Nigeria, who really conduct these scams in a variety of ways. One of the most common ways is making use of all of the social security numbers and personal data that are out for sale on the dark web which are extremely valuable in the context of unemployment insurance scams. And they're able to move this money out of the country using payment apps and money mules. And we're still pulling back the curtain on a lot of this at this point. We're not sure in total how much has been stolen and what portion of that has gone to foreign criminal groups. But, you know, the rhetoric from law enforcement and officials on this is really clear and stark that this is, you know, one of the biggest fraud schemes that they've seen in a long time and an economic attack on the United States. Yeah, as you mentioned, you know, these are sophisticated outfits, but the actual implementation of this was was pretty easy, relatively speaking. A lot of them exploited these new things that benefits for contractors and gig workers. 
you know, there was a lot of easing of rules so that people can access their money a lot quicker. And some of these crooks were getting on a FaceTime using masks and other creative ways to fool some of these face identification stuff. But that's one of the ways where they're able to get in. Uh, so many rules were relaxed around this. That's how they were able to strike. Exactly. And, you know, the unemployment system in general had struggled with issues of outdated tech and weak verification systems for years, decades, flagged by federal watchdogs over and over again. And then on top of that, you know, kind of already precarious situation, the CARES Act really tried to make benefits easier to access for obvious reasons. In particular, they opened benefits up to people who aren't usually eligible gig economy workers, contractors, the self-employed, which was, of course, much needed, but created issues from a fraud standpoint, because there's no employer who can really verify those claims. It's basically built around self-certification, the honor system. I wanted to focus a little bit on uh, the money and kind of where states stand on it. As you mentioned, you know, we really don't know how much has been taken. The FBI has 2,000 investigations open with all of this They've recovered about $100 million. The Secret Service was able to get back $1.3 billion. But we're, we're seeing numbers you know, that far <laughs> exceed all of that. And uh, you talk about how some of this underreporting and all this stuff. So more than two-thirds of states, 34 of them, said they, they didn't have any cases of theft overpayments or anything like that. But that just isn't true. I mean, <laughs> this is happening all over the place. Yeah, the, the accounting for these sums is a, a really difficult process. We reached out to state agencies back in the winter and asked them how much they thought they had lost to fraud. And the vast majority of them simply didn't know at that point. And, you know, the inspector general for the labor department has said there will be at least $87 billion in misspent unemployment funds, which is a conservative estimate that assumes no spike in fraud rates compared to previous years. And, you know, as we're talking about right now, we know fraud did spike. So the question is, how much did it spike and how much higher will it push that uh, $87 billion? And, you know, both the FBI and the inspector general declined to give actual estimates of what that would be. Um, an identity verification company, ID.me, that's on the front lines of this issue in 27 states has, you know, said publicly that they think there'll be more like $400 billion. Wow. And that is obviously, as you were talking about, in really stark contrast to the Department of Labor, which has totaled up a little bit over a billion dollars across all states in these three CARES Act-related programs. California, for instance, had only, you know, in the data, they are shown to only have reported about $2 million in fraud across the CARES Act programs. And that's after publicly acknowledging over $11 billion in unemployment fraud after a January audit. So there's, there's a lot of pieces that still have to fall into place when it comes to getting a final number on yeah. this. And we probably won't have some for some time. Definitely. Yeah. The question constantly begs itself, though. So how do they do this? And you profiled, I guess there was a Nigerian fraud ring there called Scattered Canary. And they took some advantages in Google systems. They were able to make a bunch of different state unemployment accounts. And that's how they were able to get the money. So how did they go about it? They have gone about it in a lot of different ways. As you had mentioned, there is a lot of use of these, this data that is on the dark web and can then be repurposed for use across multiple states. And on top of that, there's a lot of these fraudsters like 
the ones out of Scattered Canary that then, you know, really share tips on how to get past these state systems on the dark web or on Telegram channels. So there's kind of this body of knowledge that has grown around the weaknesses in state systems and that, you know, even as state systems now are uncovering them, there's so much attention that is spent on this from a criminal angle that even as the bleeding is stopping, there are still you know, many instances of success, unfortunately. In their case, they were able to take advantage of a quirk in Google system that doesn't recognize dots in email addresses. So they were mm-hmm. able to open up you know, multiple email addresses that are very similar to each other. And that's how they went about it. And you know, obviously, we know the money that's attached to everything, especially when at the height of the pandemic where people were able to claim so much in extra unemployment benefits. I mean, they were making a ton of money. And then, as you also alluded to, transferring them to cash apps, sending it out of the country, changing it into Bitcoin. I mean, they had made a whole business out of all of this stuff. So, yeah, I'm sure we'll continue to hear more about how the fraud was going rampant in all of this stuff. But, you know, we'll, we'll continue to monitor all of that. Kit Ramgopal, reporter with the investigative unit at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you're a restaurant owner and you're looking to cut costs, probably one of the easiest ways to do that is to remove any kind of menu item that takes like two people to make or that the ingredients are really expensive, as you mentioned, seafood, or, you know, it's just time consuming. That might be the dish you take off the menu. Joining us now is Patricia Escarciga, reporting fellow at The Counter. Thanks for joining us, Patricia. Hi, Oscar. Thanks for having me on. Wanted to check in with the restaurant industry right now. Uh, the pandemic affected a lot of industries across the country, of course, but probably the restaurant industry got affected the most. If not, it's one of them up there. And uh, one of the things that we're seeing now is just kind of the the evolution of what's happened as far as menus go, how the restaurants have had to adapt to the pandemic at different stages throughout the pandemic as well. So it's kind of reshaping what we experience at the restaurants. So, Patricia, you wrote an article about how these menus have been changing, small incremental additions, complete overhaul of menus. Seafood is out in a lot of places because it's so time intensive to work with and supply chain issues. Uh, So, Patricia, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing. Yeah, that's right, Oscar. As you uh, touched on, the pandemic has really had a dramatic effect on the restaurant industry. Um, And obviously, one of the biggest things it did was it summarily shut down the whole, you know, industry. Indoor dining shut down for weeks and months, depending on where you live and depending on the restaurant. But it's had a lot of effects on pretty much every aspect of running a restaurant. So some of the main things that have happened in the last year and a half is the price of ingredients has gone up. Some ingredients have been harder to get. That's made it harder to hire and keep workers. And for consumers, it's made the restaurant going experience, you know, really fraught and even dangerous um, at times. So all of these things have had a really, you know, big effect on restaurant menus. I think the restaurant menu reflects these changes. So some of the things we're seeing are, I'd say, the number one change or, you know, thing that's fluctuating the most are prices. So we've seen menu prices go up. In the past year, fast food and fast casual restaurants, I mentioned in the story, 
um, have been kind of the most aggressive. So we've seen Taco Bell, McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, Chipotle. They've all raised their prices by about 8 to 10% um, in the past few months. Um, independent restaurants are also raising prices. In some cases, they're being really explicit about it. Uh, one of the one of the restaurant tours I interviewed for this story in the counter is, um, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, David Nayfield from Cafico, which is an Italian kind of higher end sit down Italian restaurant in San Francisco, and they've added a surcharge. And um, Nayfield calls it the price of dining in because it's so expensive to pay his workers in a city like San Francisco. Yeah, and he even had he even had an interesting thing too. Yeah. He said, you know, for a long time, you know, restaurants obviously have needed to raise their prices, but there's been a fear of telling customers that you have to pay a little bit more to dine in, and that's kind of been one of the hesitations that they had, you know, before the pandemic even. Yeah, this is kind of something that's been like a tension, right? That's been in ingrained kind of in the restaurant industry for past several decades, but the pandemic really kind of blew everything open. And one of the things I found really interesting that he said was, you know, we've been working off bad math. We always hear about these razor thin margins. So it's it's really hard to open a restaurant. It's really, it's even harder to keep a restaurant going because the profit is so slim on uh, running a restaurant. So he says, you know, there has to be a price for, the cost of sitting inside like a, a nice dining room, having someone, you know, cook restaurant quality food and serve it to you. We've been paying too low for that is was his point. So a lot of restaurants are, you know, kind of facing that right now and saying, well, this is a, what it really costs to dine here. So this is a surcharge. He has a 10% surcharge that is printed at the top of the menu and, and kind of connected to that is menus just getting smaller and less complicated right. overall has been one of the big changes. And yeah. That, and that helps them too to streamline the process for them, you know, price of ingredients, price of dishes overall, right? I mean, that's how that helps them streamline that process. And, you know, I didn't really notice it until you mentioned the article. IHOP downsized their 12 page menu down to a two page menu. McDonald's in some areas took away their all day breakfast. More than 60% of restaurants said that they're going to keep these smaller menus going forward for now. Yeah, that's right. And um, even like independent restaurants, if you have a, if you think about it, if you're a restaurant owner and you're looking to cut costs, probably one of the easiest ways to do that is to remove any kind of menu item that takes like two people to make or that the ingredients are really expensive, as you mentioned, seafood, or, you know, it's just time consuming that might be the dish you take off the menu. And um, we've seen that at fast food restaurants where they're streamlining the menus to make it more cost-effective to make them with less workers. So this is all kind of um, connected, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest things, obviously, we have to mention too, is throughout the pandemic, restaurants geared their, their menus towards takeout and delivery. And, you know, just going out recently to a couple of restaurants, I'm still seeing restaurants in full swing with that. I went to a sushi restaurant. They actually mm-hmm. took a portion away of the floor to dedicate to packaging the to-go stuff. And they're still doing that. You know, they didn't modify the floor now that everything was kind of opening back up. So that's still a big thing that restaurants had to deal with. Yeah. One of the things I, I touch on in the story is one of the more startling numbers, or eye-opening numbers, is how many people ordered food 
using a delivery app or, you know, going online and ordering, but how many people use like an online or web or like, you know, mobile platform to order food for the first time to order restaurant food. And that is huge upswing in that. I think uh, Patronix, one of the platforms that, you know, restaurants use, their number is 65% increase. And most of those people had never ordered you know, using an online platform before. And that really speaks to just how how uh, takeout has become like this permanent fixture of dining at the moment and how I really think it's something that's not going to go away anytime soon. One of the other things that we've talked about a lot on the podcast too is the ghost kitchens, the virtual brands, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all these things that you do find on those delivery apps. And, you know, that's all impacting the menus too. I mean, these menus are curated really to a geographical location pretty much. Hey, people in this region want this type of food. Let's give it to them that way. So just another extension even of how the menus are changing, how restaurants have to cater to us even more. Sure. Yeah. Ghost kitchens became really popular during the pandemic. And it makes sense if you're a restaurant owner and you're finding ways to do business without like the big costs associated with running a restaurant. So without having to pay for a huge lease, right? For a big building without without having to hire big staff. Um, One of the easiest ways to open a restaurant these days is to, you know, um, rent out, you know, someone's kitchen, um, have one or two people on staff, and run a ghost kitchen. And as you mentioned, it's really sort of shifting menus to become hyper-local and really specific to, like, what um, is popular in, in, in certain areas. So I think one of the things I found in doing the reporting for this story is that there's, like, not one way. We obviously have these really big, broad sort of movements happening, but I interviewed a historian, Rebecca Spang, and she... I thought she really put her finger on it when she said, like, the restaurant industry is so fragmented. There's, it's moving in so many ways. There's so many different price points and so many types of menus. And the pandemic really, like, kind of accelerated that fragmentation. And um, one of the things I worry about is just, like, the restaurant experience becoming, especially the sit-down sort of more higher-end fine dining restaurant experience, really becoming just for you know, people with that kind of money to do that more frequently and the convenience and pleasure of having someone else cook, prepare and serve your food, that will become something, at least for, I think, the next few months and years ahead, mm-hmm. something that if you want to do that, you're you're going to have to spend a little more for that, right. for that privilege. Yeah, that's a really interesting notion that mid-range experience could mm-hmm. be lost for right now, especially, you know, as we've been talking about uh, ghost kitchens, delivering food, you know, a lot of people are happy to eat at home, you know, just get the takeout and go and eat at home. And, and you're right, this, uh, we could be losing some of this mid-range experience. So yeah, a lot of stuff to do. And, and that's a great way to put it. I, I, I do agree that it is kind of fragmented in that way. So we'll keep watching out what happens with these menus, with the restaurant industry. Patricia Escarcega, reporting fellow at the counter. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.